Hi, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast, where experts answer questions and share real-world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guest, welcome Frank Gallinelli. Frank, thanks for joining us today on Realty Speak to chat about the metrics used to analyze opportunities investment real estate. Thanks very much, Bill. I'm really glad that you invited me to be on your podcast and happy to be here. And glad you're here with us, Frank. You know, during your long career, you've been an investor in real estate, an investment real estate data aficionado, author of six books on the subject, and adjunct assistant professor at Columbia University for the Master of Science in Real Estate Development Program. That's pretty impressive. You make me a little bit worried when you give me all those credentials. I mean, I might start believing my own press releases pretty soon. But, <laughs> but thank you. I think I think most of that is probably true. And it is six books, right? I think it's. I think it might be closer to four. I don't count the the little eBooks uh, uh, as uh, as publications, but I've got three that are out there with you know real covers on them. One that's more a little bit more lengthy as an eBook that's on uh, on Amazon, and uh, so I think I think I'm at. I think I'm at four that I can really take credit for. All right. Well, you know what? I don't have any books. So four is better than <laughs> none. Uh, maybe not as good as six, but you do have the ebook. So I'm going to give you credit for six. And you're coming to us from Connecticut today. Is that right? That's right. And it's a beautiful day here, finally. Well, glad to hear you're enjoying the weather. Hey, tell us a little bit about the journey from real estate investment to Columbia University, adjunct assistant professor and everything in between. Just about every step of the way was unplanned and, and kind of uh, serendipitous. I, I got into real estate about, oh, more than 40 years ago. I was originally a, actually a, a public school teacher. Wasn't making very much money doing that. So I got involved in real estate to, as, a, as a part-time sales associate and also as, a, as an investor in small investment properties like uh, multifamily houses. I lived in one, as a matter of fact. From that point, uh, I, got, uh, I got recruited to be sales manager for one of the, uh, one of the more reputable commercial real estate brokerages in the, in the area. And uh, after that, to join a, a family business, which is where I got my uh, feet wet with, uh, with computers. It, uh, that was back around uh, uh, 1980, early 80s. And because of that involvement, I was uh, interested in acquiring a piece of commercial real estate that was of, of importance to the family business. So I got involved with a novel new device that was becoming uh, popular. I'm not sure if popular would be quite the right word, but at least it, it was showing its, it's uh, showing its head above water uh, back in the early 80s, something called a personal computer. Those are a little, those are a little more popular today. I think they're more common than they were yeah, back they then were. because it, it, at the time when uh, at the time when I was doing this, if I invited everybody uh, to my house for dinner who owned a personal computer, I'd have had some empty chairs at my dining room table. But in any event, uh, there was a there was this contraption, and there was something else that that was uh, coming uh, uh, coming into existence called the spreadsheet. And so I decided I might put these two things together and see if I could evaluate this particular commercial property that we were looking to uh, to acquire. So I did, and that was the uh, the birth of my real estate investment analysis software. I had a partner uh, who was a CPA uh, at the time. And he looked at this uh, evaluation that I was doing, and he said, how'd you do that? When he said that, I, I decided it was time to uh, give birth to a software company. So that's how real data 
uh, came into uh, into being into the in the early 80s 1982 actually is when we started selling software and we were going along fairly uh, fairly well with that and uh, then came along some other novel event and that was called the internet so we were we we antedate the internet so we were out selling things with magazine ads and putting discs in envelopes but then the internet came along and uh, we were early adopters of that our website goes back to 1980s, uh, 1996, we began to sell our software on the internet, and I was writing some articles. That, there weren't anything called blogs back then. We seemed to, we seemed to antedate just about everything. I, in any event, I would write occasional, uh, you know, occasional articles, uh, educational articles, educational content, and that, uh, uh, that caught the eye of an editor from McGraw-Hill, who called me up and said, uh, we might want you to write a book about real estate investing. And of course, I wasn't savvy enough about to realize that I should be falling to my knees in gratitude. I just gave the guy a hard time. That's pretty That's pretty funny. And so he sends me this book. He says, maybe something like something, something that we've done once before. And uh, so he sends me this book and I, and I called him back and I said, you know, I took a look at what you sent me here. And uh, I've been dealing with real estate people now for a couple of decades. And I can think of maybe three people who could understand the book you just sent me. And by the way, I'm not one of them. So uh, maybe we would want to try something that's, uh, you know, a little bit more understandable, something that presumes that the reader, you know, has, 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 has a reasonable degree of intelligence, but no background in real estate. And so, you know, I dashed something off and again serendipity it's been on amazon's you know top real estate uh, books now for i think going on 14 years whatever who knew uh if i tried to do my edit my, my my subsequent editor once said to me uh something along the lines of you're only as good as your last book now now that i'm four books down the line i understand and appreciate the truth of what she said <laughs> because <laughs> because I never quite equals the success of that first book. Again, that was that was entirely serendipitous. And then, then the book caught the attention of someone who introduced me to the director of the real estate uh, development program at Columbia. So again, one thing kind of unplanned event leading to the next unplanned event. And I've been uh, uh, doing the, uh, the the Columbia thing now for about a for about a decade and a half. Although I will tell you that this year I'm taking a year off. Uh, I'm getting a year off for good behavior. I'm going to uh, uh, devote this uh, this year instead to just some family and personal things and uh, leave teaching aside for at least a year. So you really are going to have a summer vacation then? I'm working on it. It'll be a, it'll be a new experience for me. Well, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that with us. And I just want to go back to the part about the book and the difference between your book and some of the other books that are out there. I did start with two or three books, and I've been in real estate for decades as well, so I have a pretty clear understanding of it, and I couldn't understand those books either. And then I found yours, uh, actually serendipitously. I read it, and I'm like, this is amazing. I'm, I'm just so excited that we're here today together on the podcast so that we can share it with more people. I've actually referred your book to so many people that don't have the background, and they love the book. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Again, the danger here of, of, of believing my own, you know, uh, public relations stuff. But uh, you know, uh, what I tried to do was simply make something that was understandable by you know normal, educated individual, but one who simply didn't have experience in this particular area. So rather than using you know secret handshakes uh, all the way through the uh, the dialogue, the monologue, whatever you want to call it, there, I just tried to make it understandable. And I guess. Uh, Perhaps if I had thought too hard about it, I might not have accomplished that. But since I was 
literally dashing it off. I wrote the thing in four months. So since I was literally dashing it off, that might have been the secret sauce that uh, that made it work. Yeah, a stream of consciousness for sure. So our listeners are probably saying, well, what's the name of the book? I wanted to call it Sex, Lies, and Real Estate, but the editor didn't think that was really all the thing to do oh okay they came they came up with a title for it i have no i have no responsibility for the title which i have a hard time remembering myself because it's so long but the title is what every real estate investor uh, needs to know about cash flow dot 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 and 36 other key financial measures or something like that but what every real estate investor needs to know about cash flow will find it uh if you're actually searching for it so, Frank, I'm looking forward to the rest of our chat today. That'll center around the top five metrics that every real estate investor should know. We're not going to go over all 36 because we definitely don't have time for that. We'd be here all weekend. But uh, can we get a little philosophical before we start crunching numbers and talk about your foundational concepts of perspective, discernment, and clarity? Yeah, well, thank, thank you, actually, for bringing that up. Because, you know, in my in my teaching, as I said, I've been doing this for, you know, Somewhere in the order of fifteen years, uh, the the uh, the teaching at Columbia, and I must be a slow learner myself. I think I think one of the great things about teaching is that you always learn something. And one of the things I learned was that I wasn't doing a very good job of it. I think for the first couple of years. So my apologies to the to the students. You know, maybe the first ten years or so of my classes, that it took me a while to figure out how to most effectively approach what I was trying to convey to them which was how to be how to think like a real estate investor. The way I began it was to I even gave them my software to use, which was a, I realized later was a really dumb thing because all anybody ever learned was how to, you know, key in numbers into 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 models. But I I would teach them, you know, the nuts and bolts and they would become reasonably proficient in the mechanics of analyzing a real estate investment property and what I was missing was these foundational things. That, that you mentioned. So now what I do is I start off my case study class with a little mini lecture, and I'll make it even more mini for the benefit of, of, of your podcast here, where I, where I discuss these the, this mantra, these three items, perspective, discernment, and clarity. The first one of these, perspective. And I say, especially uh, relevant to students, at least the, uh, part of the, the, the notion of perspective, is that if you're going to analyze the quality of a, a potential real estate investment. You have to put yourself into the story as the real participant. Can't look at this as as some kind of a math problem that you're trying to solve. I mean, I know I'm a numbers guy, but nonetheless, you know, this is not the the leaky cistern problem that we all had in algebra one in in eighth grade. Uh, but you got to think of this as as a real situation and put yourself really paint yourself really into the picture. Uh, look at yourself as a real person who's going to be owning that property and understand it from that perspective. Because until you actually buy into the idea that I am going to be owning this property and how is it going to affect me financially, you're not really going to make a very effective, uh, do a very effective job at analyzing it. But the other part of perspective, which I think gets lost very often, is to get into the habit of looking at the transaction, looking at the deal, looking at the investment from the point of view of another party involved in the investment. So, for example, one of the more obvious things, look at it from the point of view of the lender from whom you're trying to get financing. 
How is the lender looking at this? What is the lender looking to know about you and about the property? Because if you don't see the deal from that lender's perspective, you're minimizing your chances of actually getting that financing. What are they looking for? Are they interested in knowing about uh, your, your prospects for cash flow, about the security of the investment, about your understanding of what's going on? as the investor, because you're part of the risk as well as the property is. So are you looking at it from from their point of view? If you're the uh, seller, you might want to be looking at it from the point of view of what is inhibiting your buyer from wanting to go forward with the deal. Maybe it is the financing, and maybe you can help solve that problem by contributing some kind of some kind of owner financing. There's a there's a case that I use in my class. Uh, if the seller and I ask the, the students to put themselves first in the position of the buyer, then in the position of the seller, and think this thing through. The, the, the property has a vacancy. It's a commercial property. And it's a vacant unit. And there's ample reason for concern about getting that vacant unit rented. So from the seller's perspective, what might, be able, what might the seller be able to do to close this deal, to, to make this deal happen? You don't really expect the buyer to be able to carry the day with the argument, oh, well, you know, it's vacant, so we have to pretend that there is no income or there's never going to be any income from that unit. Because even though the the revenue from that unit is now reduced, it's going to come online at some point. On the other hand, you can't make believe that it is rented because it's not. So you can't treat it as though it is a fully rented property. So after we have a little give and take with the uh, with, with, with the class, I finally bring up the idea, which usually no one thinks of, is look at it from the point of view of the seller. How about offering a rent guarantee? How about saying to that buyer, okay, you're worried about that vacancy? Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to guarantee the rent for a full year for that vacant unit. So no matter how long it takes you to rent that space up, you don't have to worry about it. You can look at it as if it were a fully rented property. By understanding the perspective, by taking the seller's perspective, the seller understanding the buyer's perspective, you have an opportunity to close that deal. Of course, by that rent guarantee in reality is really tantamount to simply a, pro- uh, a price reduction. By the seller understanding the buyer's point of view there, the seller has seized the opportunity to overcome the buyer's objection, to overcome the buyer's problem, to solve the buyer's problem. So perspective I think is one of the three key things that people need to bring to the table when they start to look at investment properties and start to think of themselves as real real estate investors. Now, the second of my terms in my collection of uh, key ideas there is discernment. That one's a little bit, a little bit more uh, metaphysical, <laughs> if, if I can use that term. I, I tell, I tell my, my my students, you know, this is going to be the closest thing to a class in poetry that you're going to get in the finance curriculum. Because I want you to learn to look beyond the surface, to look to look at the painting that might be behind the fresco, as it were, to look for the story behind the story. I wear them out with, uh, with art and literary uh, uh, allusions there until the eyes start to roll. Be that as it may, by the end of the, of, the, of the class, I think they understand that I'm not totally deranged and I've got a, I've got a point to be made here to look beyond the surface of, of the information, because the surface of the information may be telling you true facts. But are those true facts really everything that you need to discern, everything you need to know about the property in order to make an intelligent and informed decision about whether to buy it and how much to pay for it? 
trivial example, okay, so you're looking at the operating expenses that the seller or the broker has told you about. And you look at them, and they're all factually correct. But it is, is it really a complete list? I mean, you know, uh, an example I have there, I tell them, you know, this, the property in my example here is in the, in the outskirts of Boston. And then I wait for somebody to say, hey, but nobody's mentioning snow removal. It snows in the outskirts of Boston, doesn't it? What are you going to do? Wait till springtime? No. Somebody's got to pay for that. It's an apartment building. You really think the tenants are going to go out there and vacuum the hallways? No. Have you counted for that cost? And the one that I see uh, when I get on discussion groups and whatnot, uh, property management. It's very common that neither the seller nor the broker will volunteer an expense for property management. But Bill, as you and I both know, if you were to go hire a, a fee appraiser to appraise a piece of, of income property, that fee appraiser would plug in a property management expense. Oh, but no, I'm going to manage the property myself. It's not a problem, so I won't have a property management expense. To which I normally respond, baloney. If you buy stock in Apple, they're not going to expect you to come clean the, the restrooms as part of your investment on your own time. So this is no different. Your time has value. If you're going to be managing the property yourself and doing these property management functions, you need to account for the cost of the time allotted to that. Because even though you may be doing it this week, you may not be doing it forever. You need to look behind what are kind of the obvious so-called facts. And then you need to go beyond the property itself and think about you know, the local economy. Uh, will the will jobs still be there in this neighborhood, in this community for the people who you're counting on to rent your apartments and the quality and type of tenants that you might be getting? Another another case that I invariably use is one where one of the commercial tenants has a long term lease, uh, but runs a business that is clearly vulnerable to being put out of business, if you want to put it that way, by you know, a major online real, real uh, uh, company such as uh, a retailer such as Amazon or a big box real t- retailer such as Walmart. And even though you got a 10-year lease, do you really think you're going to have a 10-year tenant? Or is that tenant going to go bust before that lease is, is up? Are you making your projections based on the certainty that this document is going to be valid forever? I kind of draw the analogy to roofing contractors, you know, invariably come up with somebody who's going to do the roof for you. They say, yeah. Uh, I'll give you a 30-year guarantee on the roof. Do you get a 30-year guarantee on the roofer, though? Is this person still going to be there? The quality and type of tenants are certainly part of what you need to look behind the surface. Understanding the perspective of and and discernment needs of of an investor to understand that investing is an activity involving risk requires a tolerance for uncertainty. And this is perhaps where what I meant by getting a little metaphysical here, because your discernment has to involve your ability to recognize that there aren't just simple formulas that just anybody can plug in and get the right answer. And that tells them, yeah, I should buy this, I should buy it for that much. You have to understand all investing involves a tolerance for uncertainty. All investing requires you to make informed decisions with what might be described as incomplete information, inadequate information. So that we, that's why this discernment idea I think is so important that what you have to do is 
Yeah, you have to run the numbers, and that's an absolutely essential part of the decision-making process, but you got to go beyond that. you got to look behind and say, okay, do these numbers seem like they will stand the, you know, stand the test of reality, sustain the, be able to be sustained in whatever economic climate I'm expecting this property to live in. My last one of these three was clarity. That one, I kind of like perspective, I divide that into two parts, inbound clarity and outbound clarity. So the first kind of clarity, the inbound, is being clear in your own mind as to, as to what you're trying to accomplish. Why are you investing in the first place? What are you looking to accomplish? Are you looking for short-term cash flow? Are you looking for a value-add kind of opportunity where you can get in there and you know roll up your sleeves and turn this property around and then sell it for a big profit? Are you looking for long-term building of wealth so that you can have a comfortable retirement or so you can pay for your kid's college education 15 years down the road? Unless you know what your objectives are, you don't have a really good chance of achieving those objectives. Uh, first quote, the thing that, uh, that that comes from Lewis Carroll, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. But I, I, I really prefer the the, the Yogi Berra one, you know, uh, if you don't know where you're going, you might wind up someplace else. This is very true in terms of having the objective of your investment clear in your mind, because if you don't, you might be buying the wrong kind of property, buying it for the wrong reasons. And then the outbound clarity, which gets a little bit more back into nuts and bolts. Something I see all the time is improper use of terminology. Real estate, like every other business, like every other profession, has its has its buzzwords, has its has its terms of art. And I see people who use terminology incorrectly, even more amusing, I see folks who use terminology that doesn't even exist in nature. They just make up terms. As in any business or profession, I think if you use terms that are common and commonly understood in that profession, if you use them incorrectly, you're setting yourself up for failure. It's not just a problem of, you know, did you get, you know, did you get the wrong understanding of what a cap rate is, but you're really announcing to everybody else that you're trying to do business with that you don't really know what you're talking about. It's like wearing a sandwich board that says, I am a beginner, please cheat me. It just doesn't work. So understanding professional terminology, whether it's this business or any other business, that's not optional. You got to do that. And the other part of outbound clarity is making a clear presentation to a third party. So when you're building a pro forma, is it linear? Does it follow logically from purchase to revenue to expenses to debt service to cash flow to resale to overall rate of return? Or is it, is it more like a scavenger hunt? where people have to kind of look around, uh, you know, a page full of information or two pages of information to try to find some some logical connection from one item to the other. That's one of the reasons why after a number of years of giving students my software to do pro forma analyses, I decided that's a really bad idea. So I switched from doing that to prohibiting them from using mine or any other canned software and requiring that they go out and build their own presentations from scratch forcing them, I hope, to think logically, hoping them, uh, hoping that they will think about the person who has to read this and can they follow it logically and discern the point that you're trying to convey. 
So can, if you can believe it, I actually spend even longer than I just did trying to describe this to my students. But of course, I, you know, I had the benefit of actually having the deer in the headlights looks coming back at me so I can say everything three times when I, when I do that. Hope I haven't worn out your uh, podcast audience. No, no, not at all, uh, Frank. And I really appreciate the fact that you went over these three foundational concepts of perspective, discernment, and clarity, because I think it gives people a good foundation for how they should be thinking and feeling and observing when they get involved in a potential opportunity. And also while they're looking at a portfolio of real estate that they already own, yeah, that they may want to continue to own because of the cash flow, they might want to refinance it to take money out to buy new opportunities, or they may want to sell because they're at a point where uh, you know, they want to retire and they no longer want to manage real estate. So I think it's good that people really put themselves in other people's shoes uh, in terms of perspective and look at the macro view, not just the micro view with discernment. And then also think about, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? What's the end and goal, you know, start with the, uh, what do they say? Begin with the end in mind. And then also make sure that when you're talking to people, you're talking to them in the language that is going to be understandable and they see you as a professional that can be taken seriously. So thank you very, very much for that. So now we're going to get into the meat of this, which is uh, the five top metrics that you like, your favorite metrics that you like that every investor should know, and that's discounted cash flow, present value, net present value, Profitability Index, Internal Rate of Return, and we're going to talk a little bit about a sixth one, which is Modified Internal Rate of Return. So which one do you want to start with, Frank? I might as well go through the list in the order that I had them in that little ebook. I think I started off with discounted cash flow. I probably did that because uh, discounted uh, cash flow is really the, the basis of pro forma analysis. It looks at cash flows from both the operation of a property and the resale of the property. And it's fundamental, I think, to the valuation of a property because you're looking at an investment as an income stream. That is a really key point. So I think that that justified bringing this topic up first among the various metrics that I was describing. This is something I find, even though it's a simple notion, a simple concept, it seems to be one that people have a real difficulty getting their arms around. We're so accustomed to thinking of real estate in the terms that we're familiar with uh, as personal residences, where it's a tangible asset and its value is in relation to what other people are willing to pay for it, so-called comparable sales. But income-producing real estate, you got to get out of that mindset and think about what you're really buying when you buy income-producing property. You know what that is. You're buying the income stream. And so when you look at discounted cash flow, which is to say, you look at what will my cash flow be on day one or day zero, if you want to call it that, when I spend money to buy the property. And what will it be as I operate it in year one, year two, year three, up to year whatever. And finally, into the last year that I own it, when I have an ultimate cash flow from selling the property, that is the income stream. And that's what you're really buying. And what you're trying to do with discounted cash flow is to recognize the fact that money has a time value. Money that you have to wait for is less valuable to you than money you get up front. So the money you're expending on day zero is actually the most valuable. And the longer you have to wait for money, the less valuable it is, which gets me into 
that second metric there, present value. Try to make sense of what to pay today for the future performance of a property. That's what discounted cash flow is about. So in order to do that, you have to understand what present value is all about. And it's really quite simple. It's about discounting. And discounting is saying that money I wait for, I have to discount for the lost opportunity to use it while I was waiting. It's an opportunity cost. And, and here's, a, here's a common misunderstanding I encounter. Let's say that you know that you're going to get $100,000 a year from now and that you want to discount it at 4% so you understand what it's worth today. Now, if you were to ask 10 people at random on the street, $100,000 discounted at 4% is what? They would tell you $96,000. But that's not it. Because discounting is really turning compounding on its head. So discounting is not really saying, take the value out in the future and knock 4% off. What discounting really is all about is to put yourself in the mindset of how much do I have to have in my hand today earning 4% so that I can end up with $100,000. And that's not 96. It's actually 96, $153.85. Trust me on this. You can do the math. Take what I just gave you, 96, 153.85 and increase it by 4% and you'll have $100,000. So that's what $100,000 is worth because I've lost the opportunity to invest that $100,000 because I had to wait for it. So if I only have 96,153, I can invest it at 4% and I'll have $100,000. So discounting is the reverse of compounding. So when you are, when you're looking at this first notion of discounted cash flow, what are you saying? Are you saying, well, I have $100,000 and I'm going to invest it? Or are you saying, what what do I need to invest to have $100,000 a year from now? And why am I using 4% or should I be using 6% or should I be using 8%? All good questions. <laughs> what you're really looking at, at when it's a real estate investment is you're saying, okay, I'm going to be buying an income stream. What should I pay for that income stream? Kind of let me work my way into that. I can answer those questions. The example I just gave you was one cash flow for one year. But that's not how real estate works, obviously. You're going to be having, in all likelihood, cash flows that go out over multiple years. You're probably going to hold your real estate investment for more than one year. We're not talking about flipping here. So step one in understanding this discounting is to understand that it's a stepwise process if you're holding it for a number of years. If you want to know what's what $100,000 five years from now is worth, and it's discounted at some percentage, and we'll talk about that percentage also, that was that was a, an excellent question. But what you're really asking yourself is, how much money would I have in hand today, growing at this percentage that I've that I've specified for one year, and then it's now a bigger number then growing at that same percentage for another year, and then another year, and then another year, until finally I get to $100,000. So it's a stepwise process if it's a multi-year discounting. Compounding the story even just a little bit further, with real estate, it's not just one cash flow that you have. You don't simply buy a property on day one, and nothing happens for five years, and then you sell the property. You usually have cash flows that are happening. 
you'll have a cash flow for year one. You'll have a different cash flow in year two. You'll have another different cash flow in year three and so on and so forth until you get to finally the final cash flow. And let's let's uh, define cash flow for a minute. So cash flow would be the revenue less the expenses less the desk service. I can give you an even more general explanation of that. It's, it's the one I usually use in my in my class. I usually ask anybody here have a checkbook. Usually everybody raises their hand. Now everybody uses you know Venmo and PayPal and whatnot. So maybe I, not everybody. Cash flow is basically the same phenomenon you're familiar with in your in your checkbook. Everything that comes in minus everything that goes out, no matter what reason it comes in and what reason it goes out. If it legitimately comes in and legitimately comes out, the difference is your cash flow. So for example, you think about your revenue coming in, you're generally going to be thinking about rent revenue. But you know what? You might also have vending machines for laundries in an apartment building basement. You might have 24 cents of interest income on your bank account. That's money coming in. In terms of money going out, you would have, as you as you expressed, operating expenses. You would have debt service, but you might also have capital costs. Let's say you need a new roof, a new elevator, a new whatever. Those aren't operating expenses, but it's money going out. You might have leasing commissions, which counterintuitively is not considered an operating expense. It's considered a capital cost, but it's still money going out. So everything that comes in minus everything that goes out is your cash flow. There's a there's a there's is a unique cash flow at the end of your investment when you sell the property. We call that cash flow proceeds of sale. That has even more things that you can think about in terms of affecting that particular cash flow. You're going money coming in might be the gross selling price, but then out of that probably you're going to have to pay costs of sale, maybe a commission, probably an attorney, and you're going to have to pay off the remainder of the debt. So anything that comes in minus anything that goes out. So when you do a discounted cash flow analysis, what's the actual calculation to take all these things into consideration? Is it one of these other metrics that we're going to talk about? You can do it with a present value calculation, but it's a number of there's a number of steps involved. What you will do is to say, okay, I would need to find out how much is the cash flow that I'm getting in the first year really worth. So I figure out my first year projected cash flow, and I discount that back at some rate of return, and I'll talk about that rate of return, some discount rate, and I say, okay, that's what my first year cash flow was worth. Now, how much is my second year cash flow worth? So I estimate what my second year cash flow in actual dollars is going to be. I say, well, now I've got to discount that back two years, one step then another step. So that's how much this cash flow is worth. And how much is my third year and my fourth year? And how much is my last year cash flow worth? My last year cash flow includes both the cash flow from operating the property and the cash flow from selling it. If I had a $9,000 cash flow in the first year, now we're going to be discounting that back at 10%. My first year cash flow would be worth a little over $8,000. If I had a bigger cash flow in the second year, 11000 but I had to discount that back two years, it would be worth a little bit more, be worth about $9,000. If I had about the same cash flow as year two, but it was not until year three, I'd have to discount it back three years. So that would be worth somewhere in between, somewhere around eight and a half thousand and so on. So what I'm doing here is I'm finding how much is each of my future cash flows worth. If I add them all up, I have the worth of the whole income stream. So I'm saying, okay, if I have all of these cash flows, 
let's say I have 9,000 in the first year, and I have 11,000 in the second year, and I have 11,500 in the third year, and I have 12,500 in the fourth year, and I sell it in the fifth year, so I have 115,000 because I'm getting the proceeds of sale. If I discount them all back, I don't have the sum of all those numbers. I have the discounted value of all those numbers added up. So I'll end up with a a value of that entire income stream that's a little over $71,000. So that's what discounted cash flow is all about. It's saying, what is the value today? What should I be willing to pay today for the entire future stream of income? from this property. By definition, it's got to be less than the total number of dollars I'm going to receive because each of those dollars I have to wait for. And since I have to wait for them, each of those dollars is less valuable to me. And the longer I have to wait for them, even less valuable because of the amount of time. Now, if I had that, if I had that uh, sale proceeds, if I got it the morning after I bought the property, instead of five years from now, I could have invested it and made more money. But I didn't get it the morning after I bought the property. I had to wait for for five years. So I lost that opportunity. Those sale proceeds are not as as valuable to me as face value of the number. So what you're doing is you're pro- you're projecting what the cash flow is going to be, obviously, and you talked right. before about uncertainty. I mean, you 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 can be relatively certain based on what your knowledge of the marketplace is, and you know that's where the discernment comes in, having a uh, knowledge of the marketplace. But in the example that you gave, you had total cash flows, including the proceeds from the sale, I believe, of one hundred and fifteen thousand, and you said it was around seventy one thousand that you would pay for that, discounting it at a specific rate. Now, it sounds to me like the rate that you would choose to discount it is subjective. It is, and which is why I always urge people who are doing this kind of an analysis to test more than one scenario, more than one scenario about your presumptions in regard to the future cash flows, and more than one scenario in regard to the discount rate that you use. An approach that I see that's quite common is to say, okay, I'm looking at a particular property, but clearly it is not the only property that I might be considering. So let me choose a discount rate that reflects what other properties are returning. So if I know that if I don't buy this property, I might be able to buy that property and it is throwing off a 10% return, a 10% internal rate of return, which we're going to talk about in a minute, or maybe a 10% cap rate, whatever you want to, whatever metric you want to use, whatever, whatever yardstick you feel comfortable with. You're going to say, this is this is how I'm going to judge my opportunity cost because if I can get better than 10% somewhere else, then 10% is not good enough for me. I'd have to discount it more. If I can invest my money elsewhere and get a better return, then I'm not going to buy this property at this return. And it might not even be the investment in real estate. It could be investment in, you know, or a treasury bill or a business. Yes, absolutely. That's where the beauty of this is that you're saying, okay, I can do something with my money. I could buy this property or I could do something else. In any case, I'm buying an income stream with this property. If, if I pay X number of dollars for this income stream, I'm projecting that I'm going to get at least a 10% rate of return. If I don't get that, well, I'm not buying this property because I can use my money and I can I can take my ball and I can go play someplace else is really what it comes down to. So that's, that's why this discounted cash flow analysis 
And this is a this is kind of a technique that is used by fee appraisers to to appraise income property. They're taking a look at this and saying, what is the present value of this income stream given the competitive market for uh, investors' cash? All right, so that's discounted cash flow and present value. Now, what about net present value? And can I try this one real quick, please? I'm going to ask you to explain it, obviously, but I just want to make sure I understand the concept. Basically, what you're saying is, if I invest X. Uh, and after a certain period of time, I end up with Y, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, should be more than zero difference between the original investment and what I end up with. And that zero comes from doing a discounting calculation. Is that correct? Yeah, you got it. Basically net present value is looking at present value and saying, well, I'm going to net it against what it costs me. The net, the part that the part of, of net present value that's net is to say, okay, let me take the present value of the income stream. This is what this income stream is worth. Well, how do I get that income stream? I got to buy it. How much do I have to buy it for? Well, if I'm going to buy an income stream that according to my discounting would be worth let's say, in current dollars, current worth, present value. Well, it's okay, I guess, to pay up to, but not more than, $105,000. Because you don't want to pay more than something is worth, whether it's an income stream or a used car. So the idea of net present value is you ask yourself, what is the difference between the present value of the income stream and the amount of money I have to take out of my pocket to acquire that income stream. And here's where present value kind of gets just a tad mathematical. If you look at those two things, obviously, the amount that you pay for the, pres- for the, for the income stream could be exactly what the income stream is worth, or it could be more than the income stream is worth, or it could be less than the income stream is worth. If you're paying less than the income stream is worth, according to net present value, If you're paying $90,000 for a $105,000 income stream, $105,000 present value of income stream, what that's really telling you is that you're really doing better than 10%. Because 10% was the discount rate that you used. Right. 10% would have given you a value of $105,000. But if it's only going to cost you $90,000, that means you're doing better than 10%. You're discounting it more. So this really helps somebody compare investment opportunities. Absolutely. Because they see what they're going to pay. They figured out what the present value of the future cash flows are. And if they're paying less than that present value, then they're doing better than they thought they were going to do. And if they're comparing two or three or four investments, when they do this extra calculation of net present value, it helps them really compare which one is better, which may not be apparent on the surface. And you just gave me the perfect segue into the next metric, which is profitability index. And the reason it's a perfect segue is that comparison is a key benefit. But what if you're comparing two properties that don't require the same amount of cash investment? Hmm. Think about that for a second now. Let's say that you've got one investment that requires... $100,000 $100,000 and gives you back an income stream worth one hundred and fifty. And you have another investment that requires a $500,000 investment and gives you a $600,000 income stream. 
Well, the first one, your net present value is the difference between 100 and 150, right? That's 50. Right. Second one is giving you the difference between 500,000 and 600,000. That's 100,000, right? Right, which seems better. It seems better, but guess what? It's not. That's where profitability index gives you the opportunity to use this discounting notion, this present value and net present value notions, and to look at a way of adjusting your perspective. Because profitability index, it's not just a parlor trick. With net present value, you're finding the difference, as we just did. The difference between the present value of the future cash flows and the dollar amount of the initial investment. And when you find that difference, it's a dollar amount. Profitability index also uses the present value of the future cash flows and the initial investment. But instead of finding the difference, it finds the ratio. It takes the present value of the future cash flows and divides it by how much cash you had to spend to acquire it. And because it's a proportion, the dollar amount doesn't make any difference. It's a proportion. If that proportion is exactly one, that means the present worth of the future cash flows was exactly equal to what you paid for them. But if it's greater than one, it's more than what you than what you paid for it. So for, in that example I gave you, where you had 100 bought you 150 or 500 bought you 600, the profitability index on the one that got you less additional net present value, where you got 150 in present value for a $100,000 investment, 150 over 100 obviously is 1.5. So your profitability index is 1.5. But the, the property that had the bigger numbers, where you would put in 500 and get back 600, well, 600 over 500 is only 1.2. So actually, it's a less profitable investment, even though its net present value is higher. But this allows you to compare apples to apples because it doesn't make any difference how many dollars are involved. It shows the net profitability as a proportion to how much you invest. Is that cool or what? Yeah, no, that's very, very cool. Because in the beginning, we're thinking, hey, we're going to make, we're going to invest a half a million, we're going to make $100,000, and we're going to invest uh, $100,000, we're going to make $50,000, I want to make $100,000. Right. The profitability index of the smaller investment is 1.5, which is greater than 1.2. And it's interesting, I don't see an awful lot of investors actually use the profitability index. I don't think they, they fully appreciate what they might be able to do with that. Hopefully, this is going to be something that your listeners will pick up on and say, hmm, I think I'll try that one day. So now, uh, we're, we're actually going to, we're going to use my favorite, uh, which is internal rate of return. And what I like about this is that it really takes everything into consideration, and you see what you're rate of return is on an annual basis. And you can also see over a period of time how it goes up and then maybe it starts to go down and maybe you think about, hmm, I'm not getting the same kind of internal rate of return that I was getting in year six and seven that I was getting in year four and five. So maybe it's time for me to recycle this property to another property that I can do the same thing with. Have you been sitting in the back of my class when I didn't notice? I read your book through and through. Okay. Shall we talk about internal rate of return then? I think we should. IRR, as it's known to its friends, is probably the metric of choice among most real estate investors, at least among most of the ones that I encounter. And I think it's got a, uh, a reasonably well-earned reputation in, in their doing so because it does, as you correctly pointed out, it does kind of incorporate all the stuff we've been talking about. 
it incorporates discounted cash flow analysis because it looks at the holding of a property over time. It incorporates the present value, net present value concepts. And what in, what's different about internal rate of return from other metrics is that it is sensitive at once to both the magnitude and the timing of cash flows, which when you stop and think about it is really, you know, kind of at the heart of investing. You're concerned about how many dollars you're going to get back for the, for the dollars that you invested. But you're also concerned about the timing because if you invest X number of dollars and you got to wait a lifetime to get a return, well, that's not such a great investment. Even if you're getting a whole lot of dollars a lifetime later. So by being able to combine and merge into a single metric, the effects of timing and magnitude and the interaction of timing and magnitude, that's a winner. One of the things about internal return, I think that makes it makes it makes it kind of dicey, is that in reality, it's not a, a number that you can calculate. And by that I mean there isn't a simple formula that says, you know, add A to B, divide by C, and you got it. It's something that has to be done by a successive approximations or or iterative process. That's the only way you can come up with it. Fortunately, there is a way to do that using a spreadsheet such as Excel because they have that iterative process built into it. As a matter of fact, here's a bit of cocktail party trivia for you. Back in the early, early days of spreadsheets, before Excel actually existed, we used to have our spreadsheets, our, our programs done in something called Multiplan, which was also by Microsoft. And I had developed a technique within Multiplan, which didn't have an IRR calculation to do this iterative process to come up with the IRR. And one day back around, I don't know, 1983, 1984, just before Excel first came out, we were, we were one of the first uh, beta test sites for Excel when it, when it first came out in 84 on the Macintosh. Product manager calls me up. I get another one of these. How'd you do that? <laughs> questions. So we explained to them how we did that. I think from that point on, they, they came up with uh, their, uh, their own function for uh, internal rate of return. But it's an iterative process where you have to keep on guessing what is the number that will make this work. Now, most people that I they encounter who invest in real estate understand that a high IRR is better news than a low IRR. But beyond that, they generally can't tell you what it means. But actually, if you've been following our conversation here about net present value, you actually already know what it means. You just didn't know that you knew what it meant. When we did discounted cash flow analysis at the start of our talk here, we were discounting the future cash flows and choosing a discount rate to find out what the present value of the entire income stream was. Now, we're going to do exactly the same process, or almost exactly the same process. We're simply going to change the unknown value in that scenario. So, instead of calculating the present value by specifying the discount rate, we're going to calculate the discount rate by specifying the present value. So we've got our income stream. That's constant in both scenarios. In our standard discounted cash flow analysis, we knew the discount rate. Pardon me. We knew the, uh, the cash flows. And we said, okay, I know the cash flows. I'm going to specify the discount rate 
tell me what using that discount rate gives me as the value of the cash flows. Now we're going to say it just slightly differently. We still know the cash flows, but now we say, I don't know the discount rate, but I do know their present value. And you ask the logical question at this point, how could I possibly know the present value? You took the words right out of my mouth. Oh, good. Thank you. (laughs) Well, if you stop and think about it for a second and put yourself in the perspective of a real participant in this transaction, the present value. Can I guess? Could you? Go ahead. It's what you pay for the property. Close. Oh. It's what you invest, what you, the cash you put in. Because what you pay for it, if you're financing it, you don't want the gross price. You want the cash you're putting in for the cash that's coming out. But you're absolutely right in your thinking. So if I buy a million dollar property and I'm going to invest between the down payment and all my acquisition costs, $350,000, that's the number I'm going to use. That's the present value. That's how much I'm investing. I'm investing this to get those cash flows, those cash flows with those amounts and with that timing. And that's the key point. That Those cash flows occurring when they occur. I know the present value. That's how much cash I'm going to separate myself from. I know the cash flows. So when you're doing the spreadsheet in year one, you're going to have what you've projected the rents to be in year one. Maybe you have that vacancy that you talked about before. The owner is guaranteeing it for a certain period of time. So you plug that number in, but let's say he's not, then you don't have any cash flow from that unit. And in the second year, now it's rented. You do have a cash flow from that unit. The rents may have gone up because leases expired and now people are paying higher rents, but you also may have an increase in expenses. You might have had to do some capital improvements so that you could get higher rents. All this is going to be taken into consideration. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And you've got the the sale also because until you sell the property, you haven't got your final cash flow. And this analysis you're doing on an annual basis. Right. That is the custom. I mean, if you wanted to be truly precise about it, you obviously, in real life, you don't wait until this, until New Year's Eve to collect all your rents and pay all your bills. And with good reason. Cash flows have always been calculated on an annualized basis for analysis purposes. And I think the good reasons are, there are a couple of them. One, of course, is that it is almost impractical to try to build a cash flow scenario where you have the exact timing for every receipt and every expense that is going out. Just too many items. By the time you're done analyzing it, someone else has bought the property, which they sometimes do. (laughs) And the second is that you're probably not even going to really be any more accurate because you have an issue of what might be called degrees of freedom. The more variables you've introduced that that you could possibly get wrong, the greater the likelihood are that you are going to get them wrong. So by annualizing them, you essentially kind of dampen these degrees of freedom. You say, okay, by ascribing it to being at the end of the year, we're all kind of using the same terminology, the same logic, and we're not trying to outsmart ourselves by putting too fine a point on things. All right. Well, thank heaven there are spreadsheets that you can plug all these numbers into. I know that you have some versions of this that people can subscribe to on your website. If somebody's really an Excel aficionado, then they obviously could go in and build this themselves. I don't know why anyone would want to do that. We've got we've got a couple of thousand hours of development time into our models. So if your personal time and professional time, uh, if you bill it out at more than four cents an hour, 
I say you probably don't want to try to do this at home. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> but <laughs> well, they say but, they well, you know, you and and now we're going back to the time value of money. They say that for <laughs> uh, Bill Gates to bend over and pick up a hundred dollar bill, it will actually cost him money. All right. So, uh, it, so he, he just <laughs> yeah, he just right, he just walks past it because his time is worth so much money. So you really have to take that into consideration. Was there anything else we need to know on internal rate of return? Because I think that was pretty comprehensive. Yeah, let me give you kind of just a, a try to flesh out a, a simple example of how both the timing and the magnitude are, are taken into account. This example I, I give in my class, you could have a stream of cash flows that are exactly equal in the total number of dollars. So let's say you've got $100,000 in each, each scenario that are, that's going out on the first day to buy this property. And you have cash flows in one property that start off at $1,000, but that increase regularly. I don't one thousand, two thousand, eight thousand, so on until the sale date. But the other property, uh, they start off big, and can, then get smaller over time. You have you get the same number of dollars, but in the first example where it starts off small and gets bigger, you've got in this particular example about a sixteen and a half percent internal rate of return. But in the other one where it starts off bigger and ends up smaller, you have almost a twenty percent rate of return. The one example that I give my class that always seems to uh, perplex everybody is a case of a investor who is buying two properties. And with one of them, he does uh, one of these uh, value add kind of uh, scenarios where it really improves the net operating income of the property right off the bat, 20% increase in, in, uh, in, in his bottom line in the first year. And then every year thereafter, he has a nominal increase, but still an increase. So his, his his net is going up every year, goes up really well in the first year, and then goes up you know a little bit more every other year. And then we do the internal rate of return calculation, and we see that the IRR, if you look at a potential sale at the end of the first year, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, whatever, the IRR gets lower and lower with each passing year. And my students always look at me like I have obviously lost my mind, at least either that or I've forgotten how to use my spreadsheet or whatever. And says, that's not possible. The owner of this property has increasing cash flow every year. How could the, how could the internal rate of return go down? But Bill, this gets back to a point that you made earlier about looking at the different years going forward and tracking your IRR. As I'm sure you appreciate, the reason for this, the thing that my students don't pick up on right away, is that the owner of this property hit a home run the first year, but it doesn't hit a home run every time it comes to bat. So even though the property is more profitable every year, it is never again as profitable as it was in the first year. So the longer you hold it, the more those subsequent years bring down your overall internal rate of return. The point being that IRR is sensitive to both the timing and the magnitude of the returns. Now, a more common realistic example is if you do one of these long-term projections, it's quite common that some number of years out into the future, and it seems to be that somewhere often around year seven or whatever, uh, you'll start to see the IRR peak and then begin to decline. Don't take that as gospel. But just seems to be a, an interesting phenomenon that I've that I've observed with uh, at least with the analyses that I've done. But whether it's that year or some other year, it is not unlikely that at some year your internal rate of return is going to peak. And at that point, you might be asking yourself, "Okay, well, maybe maybe I've ridden this horse long enough, and it's time to uh, it's time to sell and start over with another property." 
So that's my last word then <laughs> on internal rate of return. Just what everybody thought it was safe to close their spreadsheet on internal rate of return. I'm going to ask you just to touch a little bit on modified internal rate of return. Modified internal return is kind of interesting. It's one of these things where, because presumably there are some issues with internal rate of return, and the main issue is that it can fail to return a unique result if there are negative cash flows occurring during the, uh, the progression of your income stream. There is, presumably, as many different possible correct, mathematically correct answers as there are sign changes in a string of cash flows. Let me, let me put that in, in plainer English. Your first cash flow is almost always negative because that's the money that comes out of your pocket to buy the property. Then presumably year one, year two, year three, year four, and so on in a normal investment are positive. So you've had one sign change. Negative when money goes out, then all positives. So the sign of change has changed from negative to positive one time. So there'll be one mathematically correct answer. But let's say somewhere in the middle there, you have a bad year and you got a negative cash flow. So you've gone from negative to positive to negative and then back to positive. Well, that's a whole lot of sign changes. That's at least three sign changes. From negative to positive was one, then to negative is two, and then back to positive is three. So now you got three possible mathematically correct answers, and that's not useful. You only want one answer to your problem. Excel manages to get around this in most cases. If you take a look at the Excel formula, the Excel function, it asks you for a guess as to what the right answer might be. You probably stop and ask yourself, here I am using one of the most powerful financial mathematical tools on the planet, and it's asking me to guess the right answer. Can I have a refund, please? Microsoft is not going to give you your money back for this. The reason for the guess is to try to eliminate the outliers among the possible answers. So if you guess that the right answer might be 20%, and it comes up with three answers, 18%, 0%, and 400%, it's going to show you the 18%. The, the problem with the negative cash flows is one. Uh, the, the, the other problem, if you read the academic literature, not everybody agrees with it, but it says that IRR presumes that you can always reinvest your positive cash flows at whatever the internal rate of return is. So let's say you have in one particular year, You've got a you know a hundred dollar positive cash flow, but your IRR for the whole holding period is twenty percent. The argument is well, you can't find any place you're going to take a hundred dollars and get a twenty percent return on it. Uh, as I said, the 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 academic literature is not entirely in agreement as to whether that's really the issue. But uh, what what modified internal rate return tries to do mathematically to solve this problem is it takes all the negative cash flows that you have and tells you to discount them back. Uh, to the beginning of your of your cash flows uh, of your income stream, take all the positives and compound them forward to the end. And so now, by of necessity, you have only one sign change because now you have only two cash flows. You've got the discounted year zero and the carried forward positive at the end. So it's able to do the math. This is all good, but of course, I think one of the re one of the reasons that reluctant uh, investors are reluctant to even put their toe in the water on this is that you've got to decide what rates that you have a so-called risk rate and a and a safe rate uh, that you've got to use for the to do the MIRR calculation so that's two more 
subjective rates you've got to come up with to try to do this calculation. And so I think a whole lot of investors say, you know, I'm fine. I'll stick with the I'll stick with the internal rate of return. But you ought to at least understand that modified internal return rate of return is out there and what it means. All right, so I'm glad I asked. No, yeah. not really. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say, I'm sure glad you asked, but probably nobody is glad that I answered. Yeah, right. Well, you know what? It's there, and if you if you heard it, you can say you heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> so, so the next question I'm going to ask you is the two metrics that a lot of investors actually rely on when they're making investment decisions is cap rate and cash on cash. And why aren't those in your favorite five? Well, okay, uh, that that's an interesting question, and I'll, I'll, I will confess to your audience that you clued me in that you might ask this, so I had to ask myself, why didn't I do it? <laughs> so I said to myself, self, why didn't you do that? I think one of the reasons, at least in terms of cap rate, is that it would have messed up the title to my ebook because these were all acronyms that looked like alphabet soup, and there is no alphabet soup acronym for cap rate, so it would have it would have messed up my title. That was probably lurking somewhere in the back of my mind. But I'll, I'll, I'll discuss uh, uh, in, in, terms of, in terms of both of them, there's one thing that they both share in common, which was not the focus of my discussion in these, uh, with these metrics, and that both cap rate and uh, cash on cash are what I refer to as point-in-time metrics. As your listeners are probably well aware, cap rate is usually used in conjunction with net operating income as part of the appraisal process to estimate the current market value of a piece of income property. You use the market cap rate, the market rate of return that other investors are receiving irrespective of financing. But that identifies the value of a property at a point in time. It's an essential metric. I didn't mean to imply that this was not an important metric. In fact, it's a very important metric. But its purpose is to try to establish an estimate of value at a point in time, typically at a, this point in time, at today kind of point in time, which is a useful function and a necessary function. But it might be a bit of a distraction if the discussion I'm having to have here is about discounted cash flow and looking at the performance of a property over a period of time, over a length of time, over a long-term hold. So I think uh, if I can come up with a reasonable excuse, besides the fact that there's no alphabetic acronym, that probably would explain why I passed over cap rate. Cash on cash, however, is a, a little bit of a different story. It too is a point in time metric. And I think the reason I have some issues with cash on cash is because at least in my experience with dealing with a lot of investors, especially a lot of investors that don't have a lot of experience, is that they kind of look at this as the gold standard. It's the only thing that they need to estimate uh, in terms of a metric that cash on cash is simply the you know the cash uh, the cash flow divided by the cash invested. First of all, it really is only relevant if you're using it looking at the first year cash flow because it doesn't take time value of money into account at all. So if you look at the fifth year cash flow compared to the day one day zero cash invested, it's then it becomes a meaningless metric. So it's only meaningful if you're looking at the first year. Now it does have some value. I'm not going to I'm not going to trash it entirely. Uh, number one, it's very easy to calculate. Number two, it's kind of nice and easy if you're going to compare it to some other type of uh, simple investment. Your cash on cash compared to a certificate of deposit, for example, kind of gives you a, a sense of uh, of where you stand with this. And obviously, 
your first year performance is not meaningless. So if it tells you that you're going to have a problem in the first year, well, that's information you want to take into account. But there are a couple of things that uh, you need to be thinking about. Another issue with with the cash on cash return is that if it's looked at in the process of negotiating with a seller or the information received from a broker, keep in mind that it's not going to be too hard if you're looking at this limited amount of information for the bottom line on the cash on cash to be manipulated. Okay, I'm going to sell this property this year. I'll tell you what, I want the uh, the highest uh, cash flow estimate I can possibly come up with for my new buyer candidates here. So I don't think I'm going to do my annual HVAC maintenance this year. And I probably won't do the, the landscaping I'm, I'm, I'm accustomed to doing every year. I'm going to cut out a few of my operating expenses to kind of dress up the look of my uh, income and expense statement. So it's, you know, it's, it's possible to, to manipulate this. But perhaps more important, is you got to think about why are you analyzing this property in the first place? If this is intended to be a long-term investment goal, are you really going to be satisfied with only considering the first-year performance? That is really almost the definition of being short-sighted. Again, getting back to uh, clarity and clarity about your own investment goals, if your purpose in buying this property is to be able to sell it almost immediately after you buy it, then maybe the cash-on-cash return means something to you. But if you're thinking about a long-term hold, then you want to be looking at a metric such as internal rate of return that takes into account, as I said, the magnitude as well as timing over an extended period of time. Final thing I'm going to say about this, and one of the complaints I hear from some investors who say, hey, you know what? All I want is the cash on cash return. I think this whole discounted cash flow thing and the pro forma thing is all bogus because nobody can predict the future. Well, I'll say two things about that. One is to get back to my little discourse on discernment and saying, yeah, nobody can predict the future. But being able to make sensible, informed investment decisions with incomplete or in ambiguous uh, information, well, that that is the nature of investing. So if you're not comfortable with doing that, maybe investing isn't what you should be doing. The other thing is they say that it's like uh, predicting the future. I say, well, you know what? If you're only going to look at the first year performance, then isn't what you're really saying, yeah, it's okay to predict the future as long as you assume that the future is going to be exactly like the present because all you're looking at is the present and you're not taking into account anything about how this property might perform in the future. So while cash on cash return is not a bogus metric, I think that the over-reliance on it is where I have a problem with it. And so I didn't want to give it a, a place of honor is that, a, is that enough excuses or what? That definitely explains why you didn't include it in the Fave 5, which now I've coined a phrase, I think, favorite five metrics. Are they related to the Dave Clark? Uh, never mind. <laughs> I don't know if everyone that's listening to that is actually going to have a reference to the Dave Clark 5. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not showing my age. Yeah, right. Well, But uh, I don't buy green bananas anymore either. Well, the problem is, is I know who they are. So uh, that uh, kind of shows some things too. But uh, getting back to the cap rate and cash on cash, thank you very much for including that. Obviously, people want to take a look at that, but they don't want to discard everything else and just take a look at that. Uh, and again, just so that uh, I know that you went over this, but just to summarize it, cap rate is the capitalization rate. So if the net operating income before debt service was $100,000 and you wanted a 10% cap rate, you'd pay a million dollars cash for the building. Doesn't take any consideration. Debt service cash on cash on the other hand, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, if you have operating income and then debt service and you have $50,000 left over after all the inflows and outflows, including debt service, and you invested $500,000 in cash to buy that million-dollar property, then your return would also be 10%. That is absolutely correct. Right. So just wanted everyone to understand those two uh, calculations. And again, while they uh, are certainly useful, they're not necessarily what you would want to rely on for a long-term investment. And the other thing that I think that I'm seeing here is when you're negotiating, if you come into somebody with one of these spreadsheets, the seller, for instance, and you sit down with them and you show them, I want your property. I want to buy your property. And this is what I expect over a period of time to be my rate of return. And you're asking X amount of dollars in order for me to realize this, I can only pay this much money. And the seller will look at that and say, well, you know, everyone else is probably going to be looking at it the same way. It's not like residential real estate, you know, where you're buying a home or an apartment and people are buying based on their emotional attachment to where it is that they're going to live. This is really a numbers game. So I think it's great that you wrote this book and that everyone has these methods that they can use to not only decide whether or not they should participate in this opportunity, but it also helps them in the negotiating process. Yeah, it helps on both sides. Actually, you're, you're, you're exactly right about that. Because if you can if you can produce a performa analysis as a buyer and show it to a seller and say, look, I like this property and I think it has promise, but would you or would you expect anybody else to pay this price when this price only yields a 2% return or maybe doesn't re- yield any return, has a negative cash flow? It doesn't. It just doesn't make any sense. And if it doesn't make any sense to me, you really can't expect it to make any sense to anybody else either. So let's look at uh, how we can structure this deal so that it does return a sensible rate of return. And you know, from the other side of the, the table, also the seller can do the same thing and build a pro forma as kind of a preemptive strike against the lowballers and say, "Listen, here's the uh, projections. Here's the income, the uh, the the expenses, possibly even the need for future, you know, capital improvements such as a new roof five years from now or whatever. And here's the pro forma. And here's why you should." you know, be willing to pay this number of dollars. So the informed analysis can help either side of the deal if they're if they're using it correctly. Frank, believe it or not, there is one more thing I want to ask you about. <laughs> okay. All <laughs> right. I, I'm game. Uh, all right. And I, I know we're getting short on time, so we're going to finish up soon. But what about the real estate investor who has a portfolio of real estate? And they're thinking about, uh, what do I do in terms of analysis of my current portfolio to think about whether or not this investment has exceeded its lifespan for me. Okay. Well, uh, this is, this is one time when we might be able to look backwards as well as forwards. All of our other discounted cash flow stuff has been looking forwards. And of course, as we talked about, you can always take a look at tracking your IRR to see if you know, where it's peaking and so on. But another example that I've used with uh, with my classes is something I call a non-standard version of a return on equity. And so this might be, this might be uh, informative. Uh, and that is to take a look at uh, not the equity that was initially invested, but on a year-by-year basis, what is your presumed equity? By that I mean, Take a look at the potential selling price, 
reduce that by the outstanding debt at that particular point in time, and perhaps even by cost of sale if you want, and say, okay, that's the equity I presume that I have last year, this year, next year, the year after that, and so on. And compare that in as a proportion, compare that to your cash flow. I like to use cash flow after taxes for this, money in my pocket kind of metric. So if you were to take cash flow after taxes, divide it by that presumed equity and track that on a year-by-year basis, the thing you want to look for is are you on a consistent downward slope with return on equity? This is another one of those cases where you know you may be having more and more revenue every year. Everything is looking great every year. Uh, even your internal rate of return is going up. But the reason this could be going down is that as time goes on, especially if you own the property for a considerable period of time, your amortization of your financing starts to accelerate and it goes even faster and faster than your revenue is increasing. So what can happen there is is that your return on your presumed equity, your cash flow doesn't grow as fast as your presumed equity. And if that's the case, maybe what that is telling you is that let me take some money out of this property. I could sell it. I could refinance it. But I got too much money tied up in this property, not doing as well as it could if I take it out and invest it in something else. So that's my non-standard return on equity. All right. Well, to me, that's the icing on the cake. We've really covered everything here. We've talked about analysis for acquisition. Uh, we've talked about analysis for sale. And we've talked about analysis while you're holding the property to make sure that you're still getting the kind of return you wanted on your presumed equity. I think that's great. Frank, your company, Real Data, does have educational and software resources for our listeners. And I understand you are going to share the web address they can use to download your PDF, five metrics every real estate investor needs to know. And that will pretty much cover everything that we covered today. What is that web address? Okay, I will I will do my best to read it so that people can understand it, but I'm also going to give it to you and and urge you to put it in your in your uh, program notes there as it were. If you go to our our website by the way, our, our primary website for the software is realdata.com. So let me make that easy. And you can go to the educational content overall, the courses by going to learn.realdata.com. And then to download that PDF if you go to realdata.com slash real estate education slash five, the numeral five, dash metrics.pdf, five dash metrics, and the, and the metrics has a capital M, that will give you that, uh, that ebook that we've been talking about today. All right, great. And I'll definitely include those links in the show notes so that regardless of how people are listening, they'll be able to have access to that by clicking through. Frank, fabulous. That was incredible. Thank you so much. Should our listeners have additional questions for you? What's the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, if you go to our website, realdata.com, and go to the uh, support area, you can open up a support ticket, and that'll get to me. Your your question, your your comment, whatever it is, will get forwarded to me. We use the support ticket way of of having people communicate with us, and I'm happy to hear from you. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Frank. Well, Bill, thank you very much. I really enjoyed being on your podcast and appreciate your having me. I hope your listeners will get something useful out of our discussion. Well, I think we accomplished that. Thanks, Frank. Thank you, Bill. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of 
Realty Speak, the podcast. Don't want to miss an episode? Then subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music, or just search for Realty Speak on your device's podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Overcast on Apple devices. And now Realty Speak is also on Spotify. To share with others, just choose Share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, you and I can connect to chat about your plans with your real estate investments, whether to buy, sell, or just chat about strategies on what you currently own. The website is BillWeidner.com, and all my information is there. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but about how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.